All right, so we're going to begin in, in Esther where we left off four weeks ago. So um, tonight as we get back into the book of, of Esther, like I said, it's been, it's been a while. You know, it's been a while since we studied it and we got through the first chapter and we got through the first 18 verses of the second chapter. So we're going to begin in verse... 19 today, but before we do that, you know, since it's been so long, we're going to have to take a, a little time and just rev review where we are in, in the book. So we walked through the first chapter, most of the second chapter already. Today we're going to do the rest of the second chapter and all of three. Uh, in chapter one, somebody summarize what we saw in chapter one, if you can remember. I know it's been a month, so if you can't, I'll just tell you. Anybody want to hazard a guess? Want to? The king had a big party. That's exactly right. And what did we see from that? What did we learn? What's the scene that was set with that big party? He has lots of money. He has lots of money. That's 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 exactly right. He wanted to show off his wife. That's true. He wanted to show off everything. He wanted to show off his power, his might, the power of the Persian Empire, wealth, his extravagant, you know, king court. And we saw that, you know, according to history, it wasn't too long after this that he launched an attack on Greece and he was drumming up support for that. Um, and we also saw the absolute power of the king's word. What the king says in the Persian Empire is law. And it can't be contra contradicted. It can't be convened. It can't be taken back. Even the king himself can't take his word back. We're going to see that later. And you're right. The queen refused to come present herself before the king's drunken party. And what happened to her? Uh, she was demoted. That's one way to put it. She was banished. She was banished and no longer queen. And the, his advisors, King Ahasuerus or Xerxes, his advisors advised him to do What? <laughs> you would remember that when you see yeah. Both of those answers are true. He, he, they advised him to gather women from all over the empire and to have, uh, I don't even like calling it a beauty contest because it was a lot more gross than that. Um, it, to, to find the one that pleased him is a nice way to say it. And let that one be the queen. And he also decreed that all the women in the Persian Empire had to, um, had to mind their husbands because they saw the queen, Queen Vashti, um, not, uh, not, not listening to her husband as a national emergency. You know? So he's going to choose a new queen. And then in chapter 2, we are introduced to Mordecai and Esther. Uh, there are two Jewish people that are living in Susa. Remember what Susa is? The capital city, one of the capital cities of Persia. But last week, we, well, not last week, but a month ago when we talked about it, we, we, we showed that Mordecai and Esther are, at this point in the story, not really examples that we're to follow. Not really spiritual examples for the people of God. Uh, Mordecai tells Esther to hide her Jewish faith, her Jewish ethnicity, which is the exact opposite of what Daniel and the three Hebrew boys did uh, when they were taken into exile in, in Babylon. And we talked about the fact that in order for her to hide it, and we're presuming Mordecai was hiding his as well, in order for her to hide her Jewishness, her faith, her ethnicity, she would have to, number one, eat whatever was put in front of her, just act like a Persian, eat like a Persian, dress like a Persian. And she would also not be able to keep the Sabbath uh, because that would, that would show everybody that she was, she was a Jewish. And so hiding, or, hiding their faith in the Persian empire, so it's not an example to follow. They're you know, not portrayed in the beginning of this story. We'll get there, but not in the beginning as just great spiritual examples that we need to be following. Um, Esther is caught up into this contest uh, with lots and lots of other women. And ultimately, she wins the favor of the king, which is a very sordid story itself. You know, it's not like 
he just looked at her and said, oh, I, I like her. You know, she went in, into his bedroom for the night. Uh, and she is made queen. And that really, that up until the, that was the crux of chapter 1, chapter 2, verses uh, down to 18. Um, that's the introduction to the real story of the book. Uh, tonight, we're going to be, we're, we're about to be introduced to the villain in this, con- in this conflict, in this story. Uh, and the conflict that we find in the rest of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3 is really the point of the book. It is a conflict that is going to dominate the rest of the book. Now, as we, we read through chapters 1 and most of chapter 2, um, way back when we did it, uh, since we know the story, we were able to see like these seemingly random and even horrible events that in the midst of them, God was preparing to deliver his people. Remember? So, yes, he threw this big party, and yes, Queen Vashti decided, I'm not going, and he deposed her and banished her, and that, you know, as terrible as those decisions were, and as sinful as the whole episode was, we know, because we know the story, God is moving all things to put Esther where she is so she can save the people. We know we see God's hand all in it, even in the midst of all the bad things that are happening. God's providence moves in Vashti's refusals to come, in the king's contest that he has, uh, Esther becoming queen. You know, God is moving all things for good, even the bad things for good for his people because he's going to save them through Esther. Uh, So even in the face of an all-powerful Persian empire, even in the face of an evil king whose word cannot be overturned, he is indeed all-powerful. His word is law. God is still in control. God is still working to save his people. Y'all with me? Any questions about the review? Okay, tonight we're going to see another seemingly random event that God is going to use in this grand narrative to save his people in fulfillment of his covenant. Now, in the details, um, uh, we're going to also see how this story, the book of Esther, connects to the big story of the Bible. So in all the books that we've looked at, you know, on Wednesday night, Genesis and Exodus and Habakkuk and Job and Jonah and all the books that we've done from front to back, we've, we've shown in, hopefully you've, you've picked up on it, is that they're all about Christ. They're all about God saving his people, God's ultimate deliverance. They're all about uh, God protecting his people because The seed of the woman is at war with the seed of the serpent. We saw it all the way through Genesis, all the way through Exodus. And I want you to see tonight, as we look at this, that that war still continues. Um, And so I want to read chapter 2, verse 19, and I'm only going to read to chapter 3, verse 6. And that's just going to get us started. Then we'll go back and we'll take it line by line all the way to chapter 15, uh, verse 15. Uh, I want you to see just kind of the initial plot of what's going on before we get deep into it. Are you all with me? Any questions before we start? Sorry, I got this sinus thing going on. I'm not, I'm not talking too good tonight. It all begins with really a plot to kill the king and a reward that is due to Mordecai that is unfairly withheld from him. Okay, so let's read this little section. It says, now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Uh, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, meaning to kill him. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai, when the affair was investigated and found to be so, that's kind of important in the theme of the story, they, the Persians investigated first, then they found it to be so, the men were both hang on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. And it says, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, 
the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate, they were officials of the king, bowed down and paid homage to Haman. Why? Because the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand for, and this is his reasoning, he told them he was a Jew. So here we see this is really, it could have been before, but this is the first time we're told Mordecai reveals that he's a Jew. Then it says this, and when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. The people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the known world at the time. So what we see, let's go back and we're going to read through these verses again. We're going to take them apart and then we'll continue on in the rest of chapter 3. Now, when the virgins were gathered uh, together a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. There's some discussion about what it means that the virgins were gathered together a second time. Nobody really knows, but most think that, um, most think that the harem was continually going into the king even after the wedding uh, to Esther. So gross, but you know, that's just the way it was. And it says Mordecai and Esther really just, I mean, they kind of seem like they have blended into the empire pretty well. You know, Esther hasn't revealed her Jewish faith or her heritage yet. And Mordecai probably hasn't either at this point. Mordecai is sitting in the, in the city gate which means, what does that mean? When, you, when We've seen that before in Exodus. We've seen it before in Genesis. When they're sitting at the city gate, we've seen, seen it in Ruth. What does that mean? Do business there. Yeah, they do business there. He's probably some kind of official of the king, servant of the king, probably has some kind of position. Maybe, we don't know, but maybe, you know, Esther got him a job. I, who knows? We don't know. But the reason that I think that is because of the history, because that's where business and politics and all that things were done. But also because uh, later it says uh, the king had ordered all of the officials, all of the servants to bow down to Haman and Mordecai was supposed to do that and he refused. So Mordecai is some kind of, not high official or anything, but he's some kind of official there at the king's gate. It looks like Mordecai and Esther are blending in just fine. Um, Later, uh, I mean, they're just, they're blending into the world of Persia. Do you see that? So remember, we're after the first wave of Jewish pilgrims going back to Jerusalem to build the city. Mordecai and Esther are of those who decided to stay. And not only are they staying, but they're blending into the culture. They're hiding their Jewish identity. All of these things look like things that we're, they just don't look good, especially when you compare to you know, earlier, uh, Daniel happened earlier than this, uh, during the Bab- rule of Babylon, Daniel and all of them, they stood strong saying, no, we are Jews. We're not going to eat the food. We're not going to bow down to your statue. We're, n- we're not going to do those things. So it seems like um, they're, they're blending in just fine. And then we have another chance happening. It seems like a fluke, you know, just a it just so happened that Mordecai happened to overhear this plot, but, we, but God is going to use this mightily later uh, because it's going to be this that it, we'll see it when we get there in chapter 6. Any questions, comments? Man, my brain is moving slow, so y'all just stay with me. Yes? Nobody? Oh, okay, thanks, Jim. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who had guarded the threshold, became angry. They sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. They wanted to kill him. In fact, it's kind of interesting that later, not this time, but much later, uh, Xerxes died by an assassination in his bedroom. Uh, And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. 
And he told the, to the queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated, found out to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So he's in the gate. He's probably some kind of an official. Uh, Mordecai just happens to hear these two guards plotting to kill the king, tells his, wife, or tells his cousin, Esther. She tells her husband, the king, and even gives the credit for discovering the plot to Mordecai. This is investigated. The two guys are executed. The word gallows in Hebrew is just the word tree so, or wood. It's, it's, um, it's eretz or, or its, excuse me. Uh, and the two guys are executed. So some of your translations, like if you got a King James, it'll say they were hanged on a pole or something like NIV, I think, says impaled on a pole. The Persians love to impale people. So really it just says they were hanged on a tree. That's what it says. So hanged on, or it could be wood. Uh, so it could be gallows. It could be tree. It could be a, a pole impaling. It could be a lot of different things. Uh, when it says that it was recorded in the Chronicles in the presence of the king, the reader, the Hebrew reader of this book would understand, especially in the Persian, uh, the Persian time, that it meant Mordecai is due a reward. The, the, it was very common for Persian kings to lavish rewards upon loyalty, uh, with great wealth, great gifts, and usually the reward was chronicled in the, it was written in the chronicles of the king as the act of loyalty or the act of service or whatever it was, was also. And for some reason, we're not told and we don't know why, the reader is left to just wonder that Mordecai receives no reward. He receives no reward, he receives no acclamation, he receives no thanks, he receives absolutely nothing. And so that's just left out in the open. We don't know, we don't know. It just so happened he heard a plot. It just so happened he was able to access his cousin, Esther, to reveal the plot. Just so happened that the reward that he was due for his loyalty and for his bringing this to the king's knowledge was somehow forgotten. We're not told how or why, but it just, just didn't happen. It will happen later, which is part of the story and part of what God is doing. But all of this is God's providence. It's God's providence that he was there. God's providence, he, he just happened to hear this plot. And it's God's providence that he did not receive a reward. Now, a lot of times when things like this happen to us, when we're, what's going to happen in, in the next, let me just read it. And after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above him, uh, above all the officials who were with him. So look at the juxtaposition here. You have Mordecai, the loyal servant of the king, the loyal one who revealed the plot, who saved the king's life. He is not rewarded. He is forgotten. And the king instead, in the very next breath, the writer tells us, he promoted Haman, the Agagite, this evil, evil man, and advanced him above everybody else in the kingdom. It's, it's King Ahasuerus and then Haman. And so you have this just unfair happening that goes on. And so we see God's hand. We see God's providence. We see what's going on. We see all these things. But in the time, I can imagine, I, we don't know this. It's not in the text. But I can imagine, can you imagine uh, Mordecai? Like, how is that fair? You know, how is that fair that I did this loyalty? I get nothing. Uh, and all of a sudden, all power is given to Haman the Agagite. You know what an Agagite is? Anybody? A descendant of Agag. A descendant of Agag who is... An evil king. You got a study Bible in front of you, right? Or did you just know that? That's, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. There are no such people called Agagites. But Agag was a king of the Amalekites. And yes, they were supposed to destroy him. He was king of the Amalekites during the time of Saul. Now, this is going somewhere, so stay with me. The Amalekites were, of course, the first people to attack Israel as they came out of Egypt. That's the whole, they were fighting the Amalekites. Remember when Moses was holding up the staff and they were holding his, that's who they were fighting and that's who they destroyed. Um, 
because of this, because of their attack on Israel and the battle there coming out of Egypt, God promised that God promised Moses that he would be at war with the Amalekites from generation to generation. In fact, in Exodus 17, in that section, God said, I will blot out the memory of the Amalekites. And in Deuteronomy 25, I want you to pay real close attention because this is very important to the overall story. Deuteronomy 25, God commanded Israel to destroy them, to destroy them utterly and not to forget. He said this, this is Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19. Remember what the Amalekites did to you on the journey after you left Egypt. They met you along the way and attacked all your stragglers from behind when you were tired and weary. They did not fear God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all your enemies around you in the land of the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, he tells them, blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. And then he says, do not forget. Don't forget what they did. Don't forget the command to blot them out. And then later, in 1 Samuel 15, God commanded King Saul to utterly wipe out the Amalekites who Agag was their king. And you remember what Saul did? Anybody? He didn't do it. He didn't do it. He, they told, he told him, wipe them all out, kill their sheep, kill their donkeys, kill all their stuff, and you know, just, just destroy them. And Saul didn't. He took Agag prisoner, and he kept a lot of the livestock. Samuel shows up, and there's this famous comical line where he says, he, say, he says, Saul says, I did exactly what the Lord says. And Samuel says, well, is that bleeding of sheep I hear? You know, he said, and because Saul disobeyed God, uh, Samuel was angry and he pronounced judgment on Saul. God's going to take the kingdom from you. And in, in 1 Samuel 15, it says this, Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of Amalek. Agag came with him trembling for he thought certainly the bitterness of death has come. Samuel declared as your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless among you. Then the, the priest, the prophet Samuel, hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. And it was a righteous thing that he did. So this, this episode, because of this episode with Agag, it is very, very well-known. It was done in front of Israel, so it, it was talked about, stories, written down, all that. Agag's name was abhorred among the Jews, and, and his people were perpetual enemies of the Jews, the Amalekites. Agag and the evil Amalekites were never, God said, never forget, never forget you are to wipe them out. And Agag, Agag was, um, was not blamed, but indirectly involved in the downfall of King Saul. If King Saul had done what he was commanded to do, if Israel had done what they were commanded to do when they went into the land, Haman wouldn't be alive today. And so look how the author is framing this conflict that we're about to get knee-deep into in Esther. The characters in the story. Do you remember who Mordecai is descended from? We're told in chapter 2, verse 5. I think I have it. Yeah, I have it on the screen. Now, there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Who is Kish? Anybody know? Saul's father. Mordecai is a descendant of Saul. And Haman is a descendant of Agag. So here you have a descendant of Agag, the enemy that God told never to forget. And you have the descendant of Saul. So by using the term, is it still up there? No, I did the, I go back. By using the term Haman the Agagite, he's showing, he's showing the readers a clue that what is about to happen, the conflict that you're about to see, 
is another episode in the age-old conflict between Israel and the powers that are seeking to destroy them. The seed of the serpent is still alive and well, still trying to destroy the seed of the woman. Y'all with me? It's the story, it's, it's how this story fits into the narrative of the Bible. And, and now, th- things are really bad. Because this guy, Haman, Agag, the, the Agagite, I mean, he's all powerful now. The powers, are, the powers of the Persian Empire are aligning once again against the people of God. And even worse, this evil man, Haman, the enemy of God, is the highest power in the Persian Empire besides the king. So the deck is stacked against Israel. Mordecai is forgotten by the king. Forgotten, and we don't know why, but he's just forgotten. And now this, I mean, you could say, in, in Mordecai's mind, the most wicked man on the planet, the enemy of God's people, is rewarded and put to the highest position in this powerful empire. I mean, there's not... Uh, the unfairness, if you want to say it that way, that Mordecai would be feeling, or I mean, it would just be the wicked is rewarded, and I'm a loyal servant that saved the king's life, and I'm not rewarded. It's easy for us today, you know, not to that extreme, but it's easy for us today to wallow in our suffering and lose hope in God. What's the point when the wicked prosper? It's all through the Psalms. But that's the point of the book. Through all of this, in the bad that happened to Mordecai, the unfairness that happened to Mordecai, and the wicked prospering, not just prospering, but but climbing to the height of power in this empire where nobody's safe, God is still in control. Okay? Questions, comments? Okay, I must be doing a good job. All right, chapter 3, verse 2. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate, which includes Mordecai, bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. The king commanded everybody at the gate, all his officials, all his servants, to bow down to Haman. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. The king, then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? Make sure you understand, that's a frightening question. To transgress the king's command, uh, it's banishment for a queen, it's death for everybody else. And when they spoke to him, they asked him this question and talked to him about his transgression day after day. He would not listen to them. Presumably they were telling him, you need to bow down, man. You need to, you need to just do what you're told. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. And here are Mordecai's words. Why won't you bow down? For he had told them that he was a Jew. Now, there's a lot of discussion about the reason Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman. We, I, I think we are told, but we're not really told specifically. Some people think that he wouldn't because it was idolatry and it was akin to worship. Uh, that's possible, but I don't think so. It's not unheard of for faithful Jews in Babylon and in Persia to bow in reverence to a pagan king. It's not worship. He's not... The king, a king Ahasuerus is certainly not thinking that Haman is a god and that his, these people need to worship him. If anything, the king would want to be a god. Um, he's just wanting them to bow in reverence before, uh, you know, before this, this ruler. Uh, and uh, some think that Mordecai was just prideful and he was just, uh, just refused to obey and it was wrong and he should have done it anyway. I don't think that's the case either. Mordecai's refusal is tied to his being Jewish because he said, it's kind of obscure in the verse, 
But what's being said there is day after day, they're asking him, why won't you do this? And, and the implication is they're telling him, you need to do this. And it says he wouldn't listen to them. He wouldn't do what they said. And then after many days of this, they went to Haman to see whether it was okay if Mordecai didn't have to bow. Because the reason he told them that he wasn't going to bow was because he was a Jew. Mordecai's only reason for not bowing to Haman, he told these guys, I can't. I'm Jewish. I think, this is my opinion, so feel free to push back, and you know, a lot of people disagree with me about a lot of things. I think Mordecai uh, was all too willing through this, through this section from chapter 1, chapter 2, he was all too willing to blend into the Persian court. Him and Esther hiding their Jewish identity living as Persians, but asking him to bow to a descendant of Agag, whom God told never to forget, they are your enemies, was just a step too far. And that, at that point, he, he doesn't say it in the text, so I'm just spitballing and I'm throwing out ideas, but I think he said, basically said something like, do you know who that is? That's... That's a descendant of Agag, the Amalekites, the enemies of God, the enemies of my people. I'm Jewish. I cannot bow to him, and I won't bow to him. So that's what I think. Anybody else have a different opinion? Sounds good? I don't think he could bring himself to do it. So at this point, at this point, and in the next chapter, both Mordecai and Esther, their Persian identity and their Jewish identity clash and they have to decide where I'm going to stand and it's here that Mordecai decides this is this is too far I, I am a Jew and I'm gonna I'm gonna not bow in front of this guy because I'm a Jew and we'll see in the next chapter Esther will do the same going to the king and telling him that she is a Jew so when Haman finds out there's a guy here that doesn't want to bow to me he is furious it says, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down and pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Now look at this. I I'm going to make another supposition here that's not in the text, and it could be wrong. So, forewarning. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, so as, so as they, made, they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, these two guys that are saying, this Mordecai won't bow to you because he said he's a Jew. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, through the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Now, I can't prove this, and I don't know it for sure, and I'm not going to die on this hill, but I think Haman knows the story of Agag and Saul, too. And I think when he finds out that Mordecai is a Jew and won't bow to him, that he decides, I'm going to, I, as, as the descendant of Agag, I'm going to wipe this whole people out. I'm going to do what the Amalekites have been trying to do from the, the beginning of Exodus. And so I think he knew the history, and that's what caused his rage and his ridiculous. Because you think, a wicked dude, I mean, you could see some guy not bowing, and I'm a prideful guy. I want you to bow to me. The king said to bow to me, so I'm going to string you up in front of everybody and show you what it looks like when you don't bow to me. But man, that's a big jump to say, I don't want to just kill him. I want to kill everybody. The whole kingdom of Ahasuerus means all of Persia, means all of from India all the way to Jerusalem. Like that's part of the Persian kingdom at this point. There's people back in Jerusalem right now rebuilding the city. They're all going to die. All of them, from one end of the Persian kingdom to the other, I'm going to wipe them all out. So I, that's why I think that he knows the history of his great-great-grandfather or whoever Agag was in his, in his line. Questions, comments? The Amalekites, you ask if they were completely wiped out? Yeah, but what I'm saying is we've got so many, Israel 
survive. It's that, you know, somebody evil tried to knock them down. Sure, sure. And I just wonder if that was a pattern or... Well, yeah, it's a pattern because the, the point is... He's, uh, the question was, he was talking about Israel having to fight all, all of their existence. Um, up until the coming of Christ, you know, um, what we've seen, we're still seeing it, it's just in a different form now. The people of God are the believers in Jesus Christ, uh, whether Jew or Gentile. Um, but from the very beginning, the curse on the serpent, there was also a, a promise that the the seed of the woman would come and they would crush the head of the serpent. We know that fulfillment is Jesus Christ. But up until, and we, we talked about this as we went through Genesis and then Exodus, you see the seed of the serpent continually trying to destroy the seed of the woman, trying to destroy the Jewish people, Israel, so that the seed of the woman can't come. So that you, know, you wipe out all of Israel off all the face of the earth and then the thinking, although it's dumb because God is in control, he's sovereign, is that, is that the seed of the woman won't come. They're trying to keep that from happening. The evil forces, principalities, powers, demons, you know, all of that. They're trying to keep, um, trying to keep that from happening. So all the way through to even the New Testament, you still see the people of God under attack. You know, the people, yeah, all back to Revelation where it talks about um, the woman's groaning in childbirth and then the, the dragon couldn't get the woman so he went after the children. You know, it's the same thing. It's always God. It's, that's why I named this, the title of this, The War of the Seeds. It continues because the seed of the serpent is still chasing and persecuting and trying to destroy the seed of the woman. Make sense? Okay. Yes. So, yes, they were, they were actively trying to be trying to destroy them. So what you see here, I'm going to destroy all the Jews. Here the main plot of the book of Esther is introduced. You know, it's not about, I mean, I guess it is about Queen Esther because she is the instrument used to save the people that God uses. But this is the storyline of the Bible. This is the storyline. God's people under attack by the powers of the world, by the powers of the devil, by the powers that seek to destroy them. And it's this attempt to destroy all the Jewish people of Israel in, uh, in, in Persia that is the, kind of the point of the book. Israel had a history of war with Amalek, um, the Amalekites. And uh, Israel's great prophet, Samuel, cut down Haman's ancestor, before the nation, and now he sees a chance to just wipe them all out. To wipe them all out. He has the motive because of his ancestor. He has the power now to do so. The threat that Israel could never have expected now becomes a reality. Never in a million years would they have thought when Queen Vashti was... was Exiled, banished, and Esther placed on the throne. Never in a million years would they have thought, oh no, we're going to be destroyed. But here it is. They're going to be destroyed. Or so Haman would, would have them want. The whole might of the Persian Empire is about to come against God's people. And we've seen the wealth, we've seen the power, we've seen the might. That's why chapter 1 was there, to show us the wealth and the power and the might of this and God's people can do nothing to protect themselves. Yet God has made a way for them. They don't know it yet. But God has been working from chapter 1, verse 1 in this to prepare for the threat that they didn't even know was coming. Pretty cool, huh? So verse 7 says this. In the first month, there's one more cool thing I want to show you. We need to get through verse 15. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus. Twelfth year of King Ahasuerus means Esther's been queen for five years. So this has not just happened once Esther takes the throne. She's been queen five years. They cast poor, which is a Babylonian word. It means lots. 
before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month to the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. That translation is technically correct, but it, man, it obscures what the point is. What it means is they cast lots to determine the day and the month that this destruction of Israel would take place. That's what it means. You got an NIV or an NASB, that's probably what it says. And the month that was chosen was Adar, which is the 12th month. They're doing this on the first month, so pushed out, pushed out a year. So uh, Persian astrologers, they, I mean, they use lots all the time to give, give whatever plan was going on the best chance of success. They thought they would consult their gods or let fate decide when this plan would commence. And the lot fell on the 12th month. So the 12th month would be the time when all the Jews would be destroyed. It's ironic that they chose lot, uh, chose to by lot to choose which day because we're told in Proverbs 16 that the, the, the die is cast in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. So they cast a lot to pick the day, but we know God's in control. Now that his mind's made up, he even has a day set, now he goes to the king. And I mean, just what a snake. Look what he says to the king. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from the laws of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, and they, that they may put it into the king's treasury." So this, this, this trying to convince the king is filled with half-truths and lies. Haman is careful not to mention who the people are. He just says a certain people, and this goofball king doesn't even ask, sure, destroy all those people, whoever they are. The laws are, he says their laws are different than everyone's. You know, okay, sort of, maybe, you know, they have different laws than we do, uh, than the Persians did about food and drink and holy days and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but they don't keep the king's laws. That's just untrue. You know, Mordecai just proved himself loyal to the king uh, by, by foiling this plot. You know, and even if you say Mordecai is breaking the king's law by not bowing down to Haman, that's just him. That's not all of the other Jews all over the Persian Empire. So Mordecai and Esther were really working hard. We saw it in chapter 1 and chapter 2. They were working hard to blend into the kingdom of Persia. They were doing all that they could, even hiding their identity by not keeping the feasts and not eating the food, the kosher food, and not doing the Sabbath. They were doing all they could to be good Persians. And Haman even offers to pay to have these people destroyed. Some people say, I don't know this to be true, but some people say that 10,000 talents was about 60% of all of the annual revenue for, of the whole kingdom of Persia. I don't know if that's true, but that's a lot of money. And without question, the king agrees. So the king took off his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. Look what else is addended to his name, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also to do with them as it seems good to you. He said, you don't have to pay me. You just keep your money and whatever seems good to you, you just do whatever, do whatever you want. He gives him his signet ring, meaning the full authority of the king of the Persian empire is now Haman's. Whatever that signet ring stamps, it is law and it cannot be revoked. It can, the king himself cannot revoke it. We'll see that later. And he tells him you don't have to pay anything. So the king, once again, Ahasuerus, man, he is painted as one who is easily manipulated to make whatever decision his advisors tell him. And so now, not only is Haman second in command of the Persian Empire, he wields the full power of all of the might of the Persian Empire, and his intent is to destroy every single Jewish man, woman, and child. Whatever he says goes. All he has to do is stamp that ring down on the decree, and it is law, unchangeable. 
Boy, it looks like the fate of the Jews is sealed. Their backs are against the wall, and there is no hope to stop it. So then the edict's written. We're going to go through this pretty quick. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors and all the provinces and to the officials of the people, to every province in its own script, every people in its own language. It was written in the name of the king, Ahasuerus, and sealed with the king's signet ring. Who sealed it? Haman sealed it. He's got the ring. And this is what it said. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces and instructions to destroy, kill, and annihilate all Jews, young, old, women, and children. In one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder all of their goods, which would be a real good incentive if you didn't like your Jewish neighbor and they had a lot of stuff. A copy of the document was issued, was to be issued a decree in every province by proclamation to all the people to be ready for that day. And look at this. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king. The decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Now I want to show you just a few things before we, before we go. They decreed, the edict said, you're going to destroy them all. Men, women, children. And this is Persians. Like, this is not the Persian army. This is all of the people in Persia. Whoever you're around, you see a Jewish person, you kill them. And you take their stuff. Men, women, children, all of them. Take their property for yourself. And because of the lot that was drawn, the poor, which is going to be, we'll see that again, the Feast of Purim is something the Jews celebrate. Because of that lot, the day of the Jews' destruction would be in the 12th month. I think it said the 13th day. Is that right? Yeah. Is that what it says up there? Yeah. The 13th day of the 12th month. Now, the day on, the day on which the, I'm going to back up one. The day on which the decree was sent out to all of the people in the Persian Empire was the 13th day of the first month. So we have a year's time before it takes place. Is there anything significant about the 13th day of the first, first month, month of Nisan? Anybody? The 14th day is Passover. So the day before they celebrate the Passover, a decree went out you're all going to die. You're all going to die 11 months from now. The day before the... I mean, imagine it. The celebration of God's covenant with Israel. Remembering the day that salvation came, delivering them from Egypt. The day before they're preparing to celebrate God's covenant, God's love, God's salvation, a decree goes forth in all of the Persian Empire the most powerful empire on the planet, that you will all be destroyed. And there's no way around it. There's no court of appeals. The king gave his word. Signet ring is on the, on the document. Even, even if the king changes his mind, which he does because of Esther, he can't revoke this edict. It will happen. There's nothing that can be done. Now, the question on the mind of every Jewish person, the day before the Passover they're about to celebrate, is, is God able to keep his covenant? Is God able to keep his promise? Is he able to bring deliverance to his people when the whole might of the Persian Empire is coming to destroy us? They're celebrating the Passover with their family with this edict hanging over their head. You have 11 months to live. Your children have 11 months to live. And all of your neighbors, all of the governors, all of the people that are in your province, they're coming to take your house. They're coming to take your money. They're coming to take your stuff. And they're going to kill you. And they're eating the Passover meal, celebrating God's deliverance. The questions in their mind would be, is God going to keep his covenant? 
Not only that, right now, as the people in Susa are in confusion and these goofballs are drinking and, and partying, having just sealed the fate of, of thousands, if not millions, of people, there are Jews back in Jerusalem rebuilding the city. God promised to bring us back. God brought us back. We're rebuilding the city, and now we're going to all die? Is God able to keep His promise? Is God able to keep His covenant? The reason they went into exile was because the people didn't keep the covenant. God sent them into exile. And so now the question is, is God, is God going to keep his covenant even though we haven't kept ours? God's people are at the mercy here of an unconquerable power. Actually, they will be conquered later on, but the Jews can't conquer them. Just like they were in Egypt. Will God be faithful to his covenant that's really the story of the book of Esther. And you know the story, so you know what's going to happen. Yes, God is faithful to keep his covenant. God has prepared this moment through the stupid party that Ahasuerus had, through Vashti's refusal to come to him and being deposed as queen, to the, the degrading and disgusting contest of who's going to be the next queen, to Esther becoming queen, to Mordecai happened to be in the right place at the right time, to hear this plot, which uh, it, it, over in chapter 6, uh, the, the king is going to realize he never rewarded Mordecai, and he's going to reward him, which is going to, it's going to play into the story. All of these events have been moving forward to protect and to prosper and to uh, shield God's people from this horrible destruction before the people even knew there was a threat. God is in control. Questions, comments, cries of outreach? Okay. Sweet. That's all I got. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you are in control. Even when we can't see it, your invisible hand of providence is working all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And God, we, we have such a hard time believing it. God, I, I, just, I think about putting myself in a, a Jewish home about to celebrate your goodness and your covenant when a decree comes forth that we're all going to die and how I would respond. Father, I pray that you would help us, that you would give us faith, that you would give us faith in your promise when, when it looks like your promise can never be fulfilled, when it looks like all of the powers and all of the circumstances and all of the things are just way too much for, uh, for your promise to come to pass. God, help us to realize that you are greater than all others, that the, the mightiest empire on the face of the planet cannot derail your promises. God, help us. Help us to believe. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.